is this really the Prince of Heaven? Is this really the Son of God? Why would the Father allow him to live like this, to suffer even to die? And if he is the Son, is the Father really pleased with him? Has something gone wrong here? With all these questions swirling around, should we really take Jesus seriously? Should we be listening to him? Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. I'm Steve Hiller, and today we're continuing a message we began last time from Matthew 17, the Son of Heavenly Glory. And Jonathan, you just asked some big questions right there. I mean, when we look at Jesus on the cross, uh, it can be tempting to think that maybe, you know, God the Father wasn't pleased with him, that maybe something did go wrong, that we might be tempted not to, to listen to him. So how do we respond to that? Well, I think that in order to answer those questions, which are, which are important questions, they're real questions, we need to look at the presentations of Jesus in glory that are given to us in Scripture and in the Gospel story. And we, and we have this wonderful moment in Matthew 17, the, the, the transfiguration, where Jesus is, in a sense, glorified on the Mount of Transfiguration, and the disciples are given this glimpse of him in glory. And it can often be a story that we, we struggle to understand why it's there and what it means. But I think, in part, it is answering the questions that you referred to a moment ago. And, of course, then we need to cast our eyes further forward to the resurrection of Jesus, which is a great act of vindication by the Father, and then to the ascension of Jesus to heaven on high. So we, we need these visions of glory to make sense of the suffering of the cross. Well, we're going to uh, go to that account from Matthew 17 right now. So grab a Bible and meet us there as we look at the first 13 verses and continue our message, The Son of Heavenly Glory. Here is Jonathan. Just as at an important ceremony, the installation of a public official or an institutional leader, you might have great leaders of the past in attendance to give a kind of endorsement. That happens all the time. You know, past presidents show up at the inauguration and so on. Here, these two figures of old appear, summoned from heaven itself to attest to the true identity of Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of the promises and hopes of the law and the prophets. Now, Peter, he sees that this is just a really big deal. He gets that much, but he's clearly a little bit overawed, clearly a little bit overwhelmed, clearly a little bit confused. And so he, he makes a suggestion here that clearly misjudges the moment, verse 4. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's, it's good that we're here. Well, that's true, Peter. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, it really seems that, that Peter just doesn't really know what to say at this point, what to make of the sight before him. In a, in a way, his thought shows a somewhat earthly mindset. Just as in verse 23 of chapter 16, Jesus had said that, you know, Peter, you've got your mindset on things of man rather than things of God. Peter is thinking this is a very special moment, so let's set up a campsite. Let's linger for a time and enjoy this. But the thought is quickly brushed aside, verse 5. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. We've had the transfiguration of Jesus' own appearance to show his glory, his power, his identity. We've had Moses, we've had Elijah come alongside to confirm his dignity. But if none of that was enough to drive home the truth that Jesus is more than a carpenter, more than a teacher, now this, now God the Father speaks from within the cloud, and his words could not be more clear in their import. 
They could not be more powerful in their affirmation of Jesus Christ. This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Sometimes we'll hear stories, won't we, of adult children of prominent or wealthy families who have been disinherited, who have been cut off, and and the, the son of a prominent family is living in greatly reduced circumstances, living even in poverty, and if you look on him, perhaps a little disheveled, maybe driving a kind of beat-up car, living in a down-market part of town, you think to yourself, what happened here? What did he do to displease his father? Or you might even ask, you know, are these stories really true, that this man is the son of wealth and privilege? Maybe, maybe that was a myth. Maybe it's a lie. I mean, look at him now. Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, the Christ, the Prince of Heaven. He has lived his earthly life thus far in humble circumstances, in an out-of-the-way place. Nazareth, Galilee, he has worked with his hands. He has walked the dusty road. And now he has just revealed that he is going to Jerusalem to suffer, to be rejected, to die. That was his troubling message to Peter in chapter 16 and verse 21. And you know, it might not seem unreasonable to ask the question at this point, is this really the Prince of Heaven? Is this really the Son of God? And if He really is the Son of God, why would the Father allow Him to live like this? To be rejected like this? To suffer even to die? Is He really the Son? And if he is the son, is the father really pleased with him? Has something gone wrong here? With all these questions swirling around, should we really take Jesus seriously? Should we be listening to him? Should we be following him? And then comes the voice from the cloud. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. All that is taking place in the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ his self-humbling in the incarnation, his modest way of life, his rejection and his suffering, none of this represents a rejection by the Father himself. None of this is a denial of his divinity or his dignity or his heavenly glory. No, this is all part of the divine plan. And his disciples need to know the Father's favor rests upon the Son. This whole scene, in a way, is a dramatic fulfillment of a key Old Testament psalm that speaks of the enthronement of God's king on Mount Zion, a king whom the Lord calls his son. This is Psalm 2, and you might like to turn there with me. You don't need to if you don't want to, but if you feel like it, Psalm 2. I'd like to read the psalm. Don't worry, I'm not going to try and expound the psalm as a little side note here. I won't do that. I'll resist all temptation. But I'd like to read the psalm, and as I read it, what I'd like you to do is to consider how the scene on the Mount of Transfiguration replays the drama of this psalm, which is spoken prophetically, and in a sense, in an interim way at least, fulfills the vision of the psalm. Psalm 2, just follow it with me and keep in mind the Mount of Transfiguration. The psalmist asks the question, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Christ, his Messiah, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And we think of the rulers of the day plotting against the Lord's anointed on the road to Calvary even. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So the psalmist says, I will tell of the decree. 
the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. As Jesus is shown in glory on the mount, and as the Father declares him to be his beloved Son with whom he is well pleased, what is the message? The message is this. The nations may rage. The rulers of this world may plot against the Son, may even send him to a cross of shame, but he is God's appointed King for Zion. The symbolism is unmissable, and the instruction could not be more clear. Back to Matthew 17 and verse 5. The instruction there in verse 5 is so simple, but it is profoundly important. Listen to him. That's the Father's instruction to those who would hear. There will be many compelling voices swirling around Jesus and the disciples in the day to come. Many people will challenge him. Many will mock him. Many will reject him. Many will be tempted to take the side of the opponents of the Son of God, but be very careful, says the Father. Be very clear on this. You must listen to him. That is the instruction from heaven above. The great prophets of old and the Father above, they have come together to affirm that Jesus is the one to whom we must listen. He is heaven's son. He is heaven's prophet, heaven's messenger. Do not let the simplicity of his presentation and the humility of his appearance and the ferocity of the opposition confuse you or divert you. Listen to him, says the Father. That's the instruction that's given in such a scene of drama and wonder. That's the instruction of the Father above. And so let's just stop here. We must stop, mustn't we? And we must ask the question, are you and I listening to Jesus Christ? Are we paying attention to Jesus Christ? Are we taking seriously what Jesus Christ has to say to us? Remember again the context here. Jesus is in the midst of an earthly ministry that is marked by humility, by opposition, by suffering and scorn. The world is not impressed by him. The disciples will be tempted to turn away, but the Father says, listen. And you know, the situation today is not so far different from that situation of the disciples then. Jesus does not look impressive to the world around us today. The popular causes of progressivism, whatever that means, and the ascendant voices of cynical culture have no time for Jesus, no time for his word. They have no respect for the carpenter of Nazareth. To follow Jesus today, it means awkwardness. It will mean marginalization in many places. It could easily lead to embarrassment, ostracization, loss of opportunity, and much worse besides. The loud voices of society, the leading voices of celebrity, they have other things to say. They have other messages to drive home. And you and I, we will be tempted to listen to them. We will be tempted to turn down or to switch off the voice of Jesus Christ, but will we listen? Will we listen? Will we listen to the voice of Jesus Christ in his word? Will we listen to the call to repent, the call to believe, the call to obey, the call to follow? 
What has Jesus just said to his disciples? What was the instruction he just gave? Remember his call, one that probably they didn't want to hear, one that we probably don't want to hear. Notice it again with me. Chapter 16 and verse 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Listen to him, says the Father. Are we listening? Are you and am I? You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths and a message called The Son of Heavenly Glory, part of our series In the Presence of the King. Now we're going to pause right here, but we'll get back to this message in just a moment. Hey, when you think of God, what comes to mind? Maybe it's something that you heard other people talking about, or maybe you've kind of read parts of the Bible and you have uh, images of God, but you're not really sure that they're quite right. Jonathan has written a book entitled God Alone. And in this book, he takes a look at God's unique attributes and how when we know God's attributes, that can change us. We'd love to send you a copy of Jonathan's book, God Alone, is our way of saying thank you for your financial support this month. Find out more or give online at EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 833-99-TRUTH. Well, if you joined us a bit late, we're in Matthew chapter 17, looking at the first 13 verses, so grab a Bible and meet us there. As we get back to the message, again, here is Jonathan. Jesus is the glorious son to whom we must listen. And next, Jesus is the glorious son who casts out fear. Notice how the disciples respond to what the father says, verse 6, both to the words of the father and actually to the scene before them. This is their response. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. One of the things that you and I need to sort out in our own heart and in our own mind, each one of us, one of the things that we've got to just work through personally is this, who is it that you are going to fear? That's a very important question. I mean, there might be plenty of things that concern us, things that we find daunting. There will be plenty of people whose opinion matters a great deal to us, whose judgment we respect, but who is it in the final accounting that we will fear? Remember that Jesus is speaking into a situation where there is fear in the air, there is concern, there is anxiety about what is going to take place. Only days ago, he told Peter that he was going to go to Jerusalem, suffer at the hands of the religious leaders, and then be killed. Fearful prospect. Peter, he couldn't cope with it. That's what we saw. He wanted to go with Jesus to be welcomed by the great and the good, but not not rejected. Then Jesus takes the instruction to the wider group of disciples. They come after him. It's going to mean denying self, taking up a cross, following him. Need to lose your life if you're going to find it. And the thought of this, it's a frightening thing. Clearly, following Jesus is going to mean shame and cost and rejection and suffering. But now Jesus has taken these three disciples up the mountain, shown them his glory, demonstrated his authority, given given this great glimpse, this foretaste of what it will be when he comes in his kingdom. And their response as they hear these things and hear the Father's voice of commendation, their response, verse 6, is to fall on their face in terror. Now just pause and reflect on that for a moment with me. In this dramatic encounter on the mountaintop, in this very revealing exchange, something has shifted within the disciples. Something has certainly shifted within Peter. Down at the base of the mountain, 
when Jesus was explaining what was going to take place, the natural tendency, the natural temptation for the disciples was going to be to fear man. That was going to be the draw, to fear man, to fear those around them who might oppose them and even persecute them. Their concern was naturally going to be focused far too much on the opinion and the response of people. But then, then Jesus explained that he would be coming in judgment. He took them up on the mountain. He revealed his glory. And what's happened to the fear of man? Where has that gone? Well, in this moment of time, it is but a distant memory, isn't it? It is drained away. The fear of man has been replaced by an awe, a speechless wonder, a true fear of Jesus Christ himself. This visit to the mountaintop, it has for this moment at least, replaced the fear of man with the fear of God. Sometimes a visit to a place of authority is quite a helpful thing. It can have quite a dramatic effect. As I think back to my, my days at high school, it strikes me that the school's building was designed with a certain sense of reverential respect for uh, authority built into it. I don't know what your school was like, but I think this was true of mine. The school I attended had a large assembly hall, like a chapel, I guess, where the, the floor, as I remember it, sloped downward toward the stage, the platform, so the, the, the front rows of the pews were, were fairly low, and then the platform itself was elevated really quite high. And on the platform, there were a couple of very ornate chairs. Thrones would really be the appropriate term for them. And in morning assembly, the principal would be duly seated upon his throne, and a sense of the weight of his office and his authority would be impressed upon us visually thereby. But more striking than that, I think, was the design of his office. There was a, a kind of administrative wing to the building, and if you needed to go there, which was generally something you tried to avoid at all costs, but if you needed to make a little visit, you would uh, enter an, an outer area of that wing, and you would need to speak with a secretary at a desk and then be given admission. And if you were to meet with the principal, you would be taken down a further corridor and ushered into a, a great room, his, his private office, which could only be described in its proportions as immense. It really was. From what I can remember of it, there was a, a large mahogany table, like a, a dining table used for meetings. The wall was lined with chairs for lots and lots of people. Over in another corner of the room, there was a seating area with sofas and so on, comfortable furnishings where you could sit and have a, a more relaxed meeting. And then in the far corner, there was a massive desk where this great man himself worked. From the windows, there was a commanding view across playing fields, and then just the sight of Toronto's skyscrapers beyond the trees. Now, on the rare occasion that one was admitted into this room, and I only went there under happy circumstances, I would add myself, uh, you, you were reminded very clearly and very dramatically of who it was that was in charge. That was, that was the whole design. That was the point. The whole authority structure of the institution was contextualized and quickly placed into order by a quick visit to the principal's office. I don't think many schools are built like that these days, but the design was actually very, very effective. The visit to the mountaintop was a profound reminder, really an eye-opener for the disciples as to who it was who was really in charge. And in that visit, their fear 
their concern about who to really care about, whose opinion to value, it was dramatically reorganized and reoriented. At the bottom of the mountain, they might have feared the religious authorities, the opinion makers, and the opinion movers of Jerusalem society. They might have feared the Roman authorities, but at the top of the mountain, they quickly learned that there is just one person to fear, Jesus Christ himself. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Now, the disciples, they weren't wrong. They weren't wrong to fall on their faces, and they were not wrong to have a reverential fear of God in that moment. There is something appropriate about that, I think. The fear of man has been overwhelmed and has been replaced by the fear of God, at least for this moment. There will be slippage later, of course. But the response of Jesus now is so gracious, and he now removes this sense of terror, verse 7. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. It's a beautiful moment, isn't it? The disciples have been filled with awe. They've seen something remarkable, Jesus in his glory. They are rightly filled with the fear of God in this moment. But the glorious Son, he comes to them in this moment of terror, and he doesn't just speak to them. Notice what he does. He touches them. He puts his hand upon them and says, rise and have no fear. And, and at that moment, then, the whole drama is finished. It's over. The transfiguration is consigned now to a moment of history. It is completed, verse 8. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Moses, Elijah, the heavenly voice, they've receded from the scene. Now it's just the disciples and Jesus. But what has he done for them? What has he given to them? He has redirected their fear, hasn't he? He has taught them a new fear, the fear of him, a reverential fear of him, the exalted one. But as they have seen him in this new light and learned to reverence him in a new way, all other fear is gone. Jesus has brought them to a place of awe, and then he has cast out all fear. And this is precisely what the disciples needed. It's precisely what they needed on the heels of that call to take up their cross and follow him. It's precisely what they needed in order to prepare them for what was soon to take place. Jesus' arrest, his trial, his suffering, his death. And as, as they go down the mountain, and we won't have time to grapple with these verses, but as they go down the mountain, he's going to remind them, verse 12, of his suffering that is certainly going to come and to be ready for the hard days that are ahead. They needed the glory. They needed the glory of the transfiguration. They needed the awe of the moment. They needed the fear of Christ. They needed his gracious hand upon them. They needed his admonition to cast out all fear. It's just what they needed. And friends, it is just what you and I need too. You and I will walk out the door of this place into a world that is a, a fearful place, a world that is threatening, a world that does not respect Jesus Christ, a world that does not give regard to his people. And I can tell you this, there will be trouble and there will be opposition. For us in following Jesus Christ, there will be cost, there will be a cross to bear. Your friends at school this week, they may mock you. Your colleagues at work, they may despise you. Your family at home, they may reject you. And the great danger for you and for me is not that we will suffer loss for the sake of Christ. That's not the great danger. The great danger is that we will blush to own his name. We will fear more the opinion of others than the censure of our Lord, and we will lose heart. We will be found unfaithful. We will abandon the way of discipleship altogether. And to strengthen us for faithfulness, we need to see with the eyes of faith our Savior exalted high, 
shining in his glory, commended by the Father, coming again in power. We need to learn once more to fear him above all others, and in fearing him, we need to feel his reassuring hand upon us and hear his voice of comfort saying to us, rise and have no fear. Jonathan Griffiths wrapping up our message, The Son of Heavenly Glory. And if you have missed any part of today's broadcast or any other previous broadcast in our series, In the Presence of the King, you can come and listen online. Our website is EncounterTheTruth.org. There you can stream the program or download an MP3 for free. You can also listen if you have the Encounter the Truth app. That's free, and you'll find it at your app store. Simply search for Encounter the Truth. Well, whether you listen on the radio, online, or through the app, it's all made possible because of your generosity. And we want to say thank you for giving and supporting this ministry this month by sending you Jonathan's brand new book, God Alone. You can give online right now or find out more about this when you visit our website, EncounterTheTruth.org, or call us at 833-99-TRUTH. For Jonathan Griffiths and our producer, Mark Breda, I'm Steve Hiller. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.